Have you ever been overwhelmed? I guess it might depend on your definition of being overwhelmed. I looked up the definition. There are several. Some of the meanings are to be submerged, overtaken as a boat is overwhelmed by water. It can mean to be defeated decisively or overpowered such as a sports team overwhelms its opponent or an one involved in a battle overwhelms his enemy. It can mean to give someone too much of something as when a person is overwhelmed with obstacles. As a young man, I have to admit that I don't ever recall being overwhelmed. I was very much into the power of a positive attitude. I looked at the bright side of everything. I was one that you would say looked at the glass half full and not half empty. And I have to admit that I didn't really understand things like depression. I didn't understand trials and hardships and people's struggles with them. Not because I was so godly and I always responded correctly, but because I didn't have any experience with that. I couldn't identify because I had not had to endure a crisis. I can't remember that I ever had a crisis the first 25 years of my life. Well, I can't say that anymore. God has a way of correcting our shortcomings, doesn't he? My first real crisis came when our daughter Angela was diagnosed with osteogenesis imperfecta, a great big long word for a rare disease where your bones become brittle and break easily. Before she was one year old, she had broken her arm, and then not long after that, she broke her leg. The doctor said she would probably end up in a wheelchair for life. Fortunately for us, God chose to heal her of that, but that was a very trying time for young parents, newly married. Since then, though, Terry and I have had many crises. That was our first. Within a few years after that one, Terry's dad died in a car accident in his 50s. He had a head-on collision with one of those big trash trucks, like the waste management trucks, killed instantly. Her mom was in the accident, had 21 broken bones. Fortunately, God has healed her. But I will never forget how hard that was to set my kids down and tell them that their papa had died. Um, they were very, very close to him. We all were. Even today, I'd say that was one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do in my life. Terry had to move in with her mom and take care of her for months while I had to work and try to take care of the kids. It was a very hard year. After that crisis, I can think of several. One was we had a financial crisis. I can remember changing jobs and not having insurance when our son was born and having to try to struggle on a very meager income and pay medical bills and pregnancy and doctor bills. That was very trying. We've had crises with our children. We had one of our children had a staph infection and almost died. One of our daughters had pneumonia and had her fever was so high that she was hallucinating. That was very scary. Most of you know about our son's struggle with drug addiction and the trials that we've gone through with that. Out of all the crises in our life, I think dealing with our children has always been the hardest. But that's not all. Terry and I have had health crises when I think back. Five and a half years ago, I went through cancer. I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and had to deal with chemo and radiation. Terry's had heart problems. She has a problem with her heart and the way it, electrical system, the way it beats. She has to take medicine for that. Last year, or actually this year, she actually had a 99% blockage in her main artery, the one that doctors call the widow maker, and she ended up having to have a stent put in. So you can see that over the last 20 or 30 years, 
I've learned what it is to deal with crisis. And I know I'm not alone. Many of you have crises much worse than the ones that we've had in our lives. It's a fact of life. None of us are immune. It's not if you have a crisis. It's when you have a crisis. In fact, that is one of the reasons that God, ways that God matures us is by bringing crises into our life so that we become overwhelmed. Overwhelmed to the point that we have to call upon Him to help us. And this morning we're going to look at a story. Actually, I should call it a, you know, an example. I don't like the word story because that kind of makes it sound like it might not be true. But we're going to look at an example in Scripture, a true story of how one man correctly, godly, handled a crisis. A godly example of how to respond to crisis. So if you will, turn to Second Chronicles chapter 2. It's a little out of character for me. We're going to go to the Old Testament this morning. We're going to look at the first 30 verses of Second Chronicles chapter 20. It's a rather long portion of Scripture, but we're going to look at it in sections. We'll break it down, and we're going to see the example of Jehoshaphat. As we study this passage, we're going to see an overwhelming crisis, and then we're going to see three godly responses to it. Three godly responses to crisis. Second Chronicles chapter 20. And we're going to look at the first 30 verses. Let's read about the crisis. We'll read the first couple of verses into verse 3, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab... And the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Minyanites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid. And we'll stop right there for now. The first sentence of our passage says, Now, now it came after this. That points us back, doesn't it? It came after this. In order to appreciate and to understand our text this morning, we need to know what has been happening. After what? So a little background. Jehoshaphat is currently the king of Judah. This is the time period of the divided kingdom. You have Israel to the north, Judah to the south. The southern kingdom was the more obedient. And although they had a lot of wicked kings, they also had some obedient, some godly kings, and Jehoshaphat was one of those. He wasn't perfect, but he was mainly, for the most part, a good king. Look back at chapter 17 for a minute. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 17 gives us a little background. It says, Jehoshaphat his son then became king in his place and made his position over Israel firm. He placed the troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, his father, had captured. These verses tell us that Jehoshaphat was the son of King Asa. And that when he died, Jehoshaphat took his place. He succeeds him as king. And he immediately begins to fortify the cities of Judah to protect his kingdom. And beginning in verse 3, we're told a little bit more about his reign. Look at verses 3 through 6. It says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did it not act as Israel did. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. He took great pride in the ways of the Lord, and again he removed the high places in the ashram for Judah. 
So we see that Jehoshaphat, for the most part, he reigned in a godly fashion. He wasn't perfect, but he was, for the most part, a godly king who sought to remove the idol worships and the Baal worship. And he worshipped the one true God. Now turn over to chapter 19. In chapter 19, we'll see exactly what happens right before our text this morning. The phrase, now it came about after this, is referring to this. Of chapter 19, we'll read verses 5 through 9. It says, Jehoshaphat appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. He said to the judges, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. In Jerusalem also Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests and some of the heads of the fathers, households of Israel, for the judgment of the Lord, and to judge disputes among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then he charged them, saying, Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord faithfully and wholeheartedly. So evidently, there was some injustice going on in the land within the criminal justice system of their day, and the wicked were prospering by bribes and partiality. So Jehoshaphat, after this was brought to his attention by a prophet, he reacts swiftly, and he places Levites and the priests over the situation, and they took control, and they initiated reforms to bring this under control. He puts the religious leaders in a position of authority to handle this situation. So it's now, right after this round of um, reforms, that we come to our passage. But this is when the crisis comes to Jehoshaphat, right after this. And back in our text, Second Chronicles 20, verse 1, it tells us the crisis. It says that the sons of Moab, the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Minyanites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. And it says that Jehoshaphat was afraid. So it tells us that this great multitude of people came. It says that they came from beyond the sea. If you're familiar with the area, you would know that that's the Dead Sea. You have the Dead Sea here. Jerusalem's up here a little bit to the north. It says the people came from beyond the sea. And they traveled through this area. If you're familiar, I know some of you are recognizing it because you've been there. But you've got this great big flat area. And you've got mountains to the east, mountains to the west. And you see this mass of people coming through this area. And they travel a little bit north and east or west to, to En Gedi. And that's the place where David hid in the springs of En Gedi and the caves and the, and the it's more wooded area. So that's where the people are amassing. And they're resting there and gathering together. And that's when the scouts of Jehoshaphat they see all this and they come and they report that to him and they report what they they see and the beginning of verse 3 tells us Jehoshaphat how he felt when he heard this it says Jehoshaphat was afraid have you ever got news that the only thing you can remember feeling was fear have you ever got any kind of news even one word news that could just bring fear the word cancer, the word heart attack, the word car wreck. What about divorce, miscarriage? Your boss says we're downsizing. Words like that bring fear. And that's what Jehoshaphat was feeling, fear. The news that was before him brought fear. He was afraid. What was he afraid of? He was afraid of losing his power. He was losing, maybe losing his kingdom, his wealth, his family. Maybe even his own life. 
So that's the crisis before him. Jehoshaphat and his kingdom were under immediate threat. And it was not an imagined threat. It was real and it was immense. The fate of the kingdom, their very existence was in jeopardy. And it came suddenly and without warning. As I thought about some of the crises in my life and others I've known, I thought about how suddenly they can come upon us. In fact, when I hear the word crisis, the very word conjures up thoughts of suddenness. A great trial that comes upon us quickly and without warning. Like a clap of thunder on a clear day. When I was 13 years old, there was a crisis that hit our town that came suddenly. I was 13. I was playing outside. I I have vivid pictures of this in my mind. It was a windy spring day in Kentucky. One minute I was outside playing. The next my mom hollers for me. We go in the house. Within a matter of a few minutes, the clouds were looking weird and swirly. And then there was this eerily calm and silence. And not long after that, a massive tornado came through our town. It was April 3rd, and I still remember it plainly. It didn't hit our house, but it tore my wife's neighborhood to pieces. It destroyed her house and half of the town, it seemed like. It was, it was unusually large. In those days, there was not good warning systems and tracking radars, and it came out of nowhere, it seemed. It was crisis. It happened so quickly, it was like a dream, or rather a nightmare. And so it is with crises in our own lives. Sometimes they happen quickly and without warning. Many times that's what makes them a crisis because there's no time to prepare. So what dictates how one responds when something sudden happens like that? For instance, if you're driving a car and a child suddenly darts in front of you, how do you respond? You act in reflex, don't you? You swerve to miss them. And yet... We have fleshly instincts and we have spiritual instincts. How we respond in crisis tells us sometimes a lot about ourselves. When a crisis happens, how do you respond? Do you lash out? Do you get angry? Do you get so emotional that you fall apart and you can't react? What we're going to look at now is how Jehoshaphat responded to this crisis and we're going to learn how we can respond in a godly fashion to crisis we see the crisis now we're going to look at the response the first response comes well, let's read the whole section 3 through 13 and we'll see how Jehoshaphat re- responded beginning in verse 3 Jehoshaphat was afraid and he turned his attention to seek the Lord He proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms and the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. 
See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us from your possession which you have given us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. So you see in this passage the way that Jehoshaphat responds. The first response that we see that we need to exemplify in our lives is that he he seeks the Lord. Verse 3 plainly says after he was afraid, he sought the Lord. It's important to note that Jehoshaphat didn't get angry. Many people do that, don't they? When a crisis comes, they get angry. You've probably seen it. You may have even done it yourself. When a crisis comes, you think, God, why are you letting this come into my life? Why are you letting this happen to me? What have I done to deserve this? Jehoshaphat doesn't do that. He could have said, God, I've been serving you. I've been removing the idols, the Baals worship. I've just initiated all these godly reforms to our justice system. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? But he doesn't do that. Our text says he immediately sought the Lord. How did he do it? He did it in a couple of ways. One, he proclaimed a fast. It says that he proclaimed a nationwide fast. There's nothing new about fasting here. Fasting was a common practice in the Old Testament. But this may have been one of the first national proclamations of a fast. We don't have time today to do an exhaustive study on fasting, but I think it's safe to say it's something that we probably don't do as much as we maybe we should. Fasting in the Bible was usually done in times of great distress and where there was a call to humility and a cry for God's help. It was usually a very intense need. It's not commanded. Fasting is not commanded in the Bible. Fasting is not mentioned anywhere near the number of times praying is. But there are Old Testament and New Testament examples of it. And I think there's a place for it, especially in times of crisis and deep concern. In the Old Testament, it was primarily a ritual. And and a lot of times it was just done for ritualistic reasons on a regular basis. But I think it's noted in the New Testament that it was done for special times and circumstances. And that's what Jehoshaphat does here. It's a special time, a special circumstance of intense need. And it's a show of humility and dependence upon God. So after calling on the people to fast, he then he seeks the Lord in another way. And that's through prayer. He prayed. Verse 5 says that Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he prayed a prayer. That is recorded in verses 6 through 12. We're not going to go line by line and really study that. We don't have time for my lesson this morning. But if you look at it, you'll see that in verse 6, he acknowledges God's sovereignty. I think that's important to remember in times of crisis that God is in control. God is sovereign. In verses 7 through 11, you'll hear him reminding himself and the people. Remember, he's praying publicly. He's reminding himself and he's reminding the people as he prays of God's faithfulness throughout history and throughout their personal history. I think it's important for us as we go through crisis to remember God's faithfulness and how he's been faithful to saints throughout history, but also to us individually. In verse 12, we hear him acknowledging his own weakness and his powerlessness. Isn't that the essence of prayer? That we are saying, God, I need your help. I can't do this alone. I give it to you. I think it's important to note that Jehoshaphat was afraid, but he did not panic. Which is one of the first things that many people do in a point of a crisis in their lives. They fall apart. 
They become emotional. They immediately begin thinking their way out of this. What do I need to do? How am I going to get out of this? What am I going to do? Joshua's first reaction was, his first instinct was to turn to God, to seek God. From an earthly standpoint, too, it's important to note that Joshua had other options. He could have summoned up his army. Remember, there's been a time of great peace and prosperity. And during that time, Jehoshaphat had been building a great army. Look back again to chapter 17. Look at verse 12 of chapter 17. I'll read through 19. It says, So Jehoshaphat grew greater and greater, and he built fortresses and store cities in Judah. He had large supplies in the cities of Judah and warriors, valiant men in Jerusalem. This was their muster according to their father's households of Judah. Commanders of thousands. Adna was the commander and with him 300,000 valiant warriors. And next to him was Johanan, the commander with him 280,000. And next to Amasiah, the son of Zechariah, who volunteered for the Lord and with him 200,000 valiant warriors. And of Benjamin, Elida, a valiant warrior and with him 200,000 armed with bow and shield. And next to him, Jehozabad, and with him 180,000 equipped for war. These are they who served the king apart from those whom the king put in the fortified cities throughout Judah. Now, if my math is correct, and I think it is, you'll see that he had at least a million and 160,000 men. Over a million men. And verse 10 says that that wasn't counting the men whom the king put in the fortified city. So the number could have been much larger. So he had a vast and he had a powerful army that he could have immediately called to go to battle for him. But his first call was not to seek his army, but to seek his God. And that should be ours as well. How many times when a crisis arises do we first seek the doctors? Or nowadays the internet. The internet has the answer for everything, doesn't it? Or immediately in our own minds, we start searching for direction and advice. But a godly response requires that we go to the one who can truly deliver us in times of crisis. The only one. That doesn't mean we don't do anything else. But where do we go first? Where is our first instinct to turn? It should be to seek our God. This truth, as I studied this, brought to my attention how human nature is to show no fear. Fear to many is a sign of weakness, isn't it? Hollywood's great at this in the movies. I used to really like action movies. And the hero was usually one who no matter how desperate or impossible the situation was, he was one who could overcome the fear of the situation by fighting himself out of it or shooting himself out of the problem. Or maybe he would use his skillful intellect to think his way out of the situation. And I think sometimes the American Hollywood attitude of individualism permeates our way of thinking. I think men struggle with this more than women because of our pride. And we have, to, we have to handle the situation. One of the lessons here in this story about Jehoshaphat is that we need to admit our weakness. We need to be humble. We need to realize that without God's help, we're all doomed. Not just in a big crisis, but in everyday battles. They could all turn into catastrophic crises without God's help. And we should be like Jehoshaphat and not admit that we're afraid and that we need God's help. Think of the humility it must take for a king... A great leader, when confronted with a crisis, to humble himself that way. It's not a natural man's response, is it? Can you imagine any major leader in the world today doing this? 
There might be one, but I can't think of who it is. I know it's not Donald Trump. (laughs) He must be the most arrogant man I think I've ever heard of. I'm not picking on him or making a political stab because I think all of our leaders today would struggle when it comes to humbly seeking God to solve a national crisis. They would be quick to look for multitudes of other ways to get out of it, not turning to the Lord. Josh Fad is a great example of how all of us should respond to crisis. And the first thing we should do before anything else is to seek God, especially through prayer. But not only are we to seek, but as we seek Him, we are then to hear His Word and to trust and obey His Word. The second response that we see from Jehoshaphat is to hear, trust, and obey the Word of God. Look at verses 14 through 21 again in chapter 20. 14 to 21 gives us this second response. It says, And then in the midst of the assembly of the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mattaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Jehoshaphat bowed his head and his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites from the sons of Kohathites and the sons of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in the holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And verse 22 says, And they began singing and praising. In this passage, we see that the word of God was spoken through a prophet, Jehaziel. And he tells them, Do not fear, the battle is not yours, but the battle is God's. He tells them exactly where to go, and he says to them, You don't even need to fight. Just station yourselves, verse 17 says, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Go out and face them. For the Lord is with you. I see several things in these verses I think is very important to how we should respond in a crisis. After we seek the Lord and pray, where do we turn? We turn to his word. Now, they didn't have his written word like we did. They got his word from a prophet. But there's no contradiction in receiving the word through a prophet in the way we receive it today in his word. What was the word they were given? They were told the battle was not theirs. It was God's. Are our battles today ours or are they the Lord's? Do we run from our battles or are we called to face them? We're called to face them, aren't we? We don't have to wonder what God would want us to do. We just have to know his word. And there are so many scriptures that deal 
with how we are to confront our battles, our trials in life. I love Romans chapter 8. And in talking about our victory in Christ, verse 38 and 39 say, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing may be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in context, this is talking about God's power into salvation. But if God has the power to see us through to salvation, does he not have the power to see us through a crisis? Amen. Why can James say in James 1 verses 2 and 3, Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. How can he say that? Because the crisis is not from anywhere else but from God. Some people will batter over whether God causes things or allows things. What difference does that really make if God is sovereign? If God allows it or calls it, is he not in control of the whole thing? Does it make any difference? Jehoshaphat trusted God. He trusted the battle to him. He allowed the burden of this crisis and the outcome to pass from his shoulders to God's. Whose shoulders are bigger, yours or God's? Who's more capable of handling the crisis, you or God? I had to learn this. I had the tendency to try to solve everything myself. When we were having difficulties with our son, sometimes we thought if we didn't help him, how would he ever get through this? And in reality, our help wasn't really even helping. We had to learn that God was bigger than us. He was more powerful than we were. He really did care about our son more than even we did. We needed to learn to trust him. But we also need to obey. In our text today, Jehoshaphat and the people did that. God told them to go down and they went. Look at verse 17 again. It says, you need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. They didn't run. They didn't call their commanders and get their guns all ready. They went out and faced them just in the way God said to. Station yourselves and watch what the Lord's going to do. They faced the enemy. How often do many people today avoid facing conflict? When they're confronted with a crisis. That's why many people turn to drugs and alcohol to begin with. It's a way of escape, isn't it? Sometimes we think if we don't talk about it, it'll go away. Sometimes we keep it to ourselves. Jehoshaphat could have prayed by himself, but he didn't. He included all the people of the land. He brought them all together and shared the burden with everyone that was going to be affected. Sometimes we need to humble ourselves and share our burdens in a crisis with one another. Verse 20 says, They rose early in the morning and they went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. We could translate that, put your trust in his word and succeed. And then they didn't just tokenly trust. They heard the word of the Lord through the prophet and they believed it completely. They sought the Lord they trusted and obeyed. And there's a third response to the crisis we need to learn from them. And that is that they had an attitude of praise and thankfulness. Look at verse 21 and 22 again. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in the holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. And then it says they began singing and praising the Lord. 
They didn't go out with guns a-blazing. They went out singing and praising the Lord. I know that boggles my mind. I don't know if that boggles your mind, but I can't picture that in real life, that happening today. Yeah, it's, this is an Old Testament story. Can you picture something like that happening today when you're attacked by responding to the crisis by singing and praising and not doing anything else? That boggles my mind. That shows the trust and obedience that they had. Our natural instinct is to fight back. But I have heard testimonies of how someone being robbed or mugged gave testimony to the Lord. I once heard about a woman who was being raped who endured the crisis by singing and praising the Lord during the whole ordeal. What a commitment. What a trust that must take. That's what we're called to do. Jehoshaphat and the people under him didn't just turn to the Lord in prayer and fasting. They turned to him and his word. They trusted and obeyed. And they did it all with an attitude of thankfulness and praise. And I think it's interesting to note that there's no mention of them being told to sing praises. They were told to go out and face their enemy. To watch the Lord do battle on their behalf. But they were not instructed to, at least we're not told that they were instructed to go out singing and praising the Lord. But that's what they did. That's the third response that we are to have when responding godly to crisis. We are to be thankful and praise the Lord, not after the crisis, but during the crisis. That's much harder, isn't it? It was easy for me to thank the Lord and praise the Lord after the crisis was done. And maybe a few years later, I see the effect. But... It's the real trust and obedience to thank Him and praise Him during the crisis. In the midst of it, in the peak of the turmoil, they were singing and praise and thankfulness to God for the power He was to show. Now, they were praying for the victory that was prophesied. And they didn't wait for the outcome to do it. It's important to note the reason they were able and willing to do this was because they trusted God completely. They were able to praise him ahead of time. So how can we apply this to our crisis? We may not know the outcome. We may not have a prophet declare the outcome for us. Our child might die. We might not recover from the illness. We may not be victorious. We may suffer financial hardship. God may not choose to give us what we pray for. How can we praise him when we don't know the outcome? But don't we know the outcome? We may not know the practical working of the outcome, but do we not know that God is in control and He's working all things to good for those who love Him? Do we believe that? What if we die? Paul says to die is gain. Is not God always good? Does He do bad? Does God ever do bad? No. He's always faithful. Do we really believe these things? If we do, that's how we can praise Him during the midst of a crisis. If we have that firm of a foundation in our faith and our belief. What was the outcome here? Look at verses 22 through 25. When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, there were corpses lying on the ground. No one had escaped. 
When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things, which they took for themselves, more than they could carry. And they were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but somehow the Lord caused them to ambush each other. And in their confusion, they all killed each other. No one escaped. They were all killed. It was a great victory, a miraculous victory. And we're told it took three days to gather up the spoils of war. God provided them more abundantly than they could have ever imagined. And he does that for us as well. And then what happened after the victory? I'm not going to read 26 through 30. But if you read 26 through the next 30, 32, you'll see that they continued to praise the Lord for the victory. You'll see that they returned to Jerusalem and to the Lord's house and they continued praising the Lord with harps and lyres and trumpets, rejoicing over what God had done. So what's the conclusion of this story? This is a powerful example of how we should respond to overwhelming crises that come into our lives. We are not to respond fleshly instincts, but we are to respond by seeking the Lord First and foremost, by seeking the Lord. You've heard of Corey Ten Boom. She was once faced with a situation that was beyond her control. She was a Christian that gave refuge to the Jews trying to escape persecution in the concentration camps. Later in the war, she was sent to those very same camps to witness the unthinkable cruelty herself. She was afraid and overwhelmed, but it was the words that her father, she says, that carried her through. One day they were on a train... And when Corey asked her father a rather difficult question, and it was one in which her father knew she was too young to understand, so her dad was quiet for a while until they were about ready to leave the train. And he said, Corey, can you carry my bag for me? And she reached down and she tried to pull up the bag and she couldn't lift it. She said, it's too heavy, Dad. To which her father replied, there are things in this life that we cannot carry or we are not ready to carry. We have to let our father carry them for us. Throughout her time in the concentration camp, Corey Dan Boone says that that's what got her through because she said, I, I couldn't carry them. I had to give them to my heavenly father. Joshua had a crisis come upon him that was too big for him to carry and he recognized it, so he sought God. He turned to God immediately. He did it through fasting and through prayer. He also, after seeking God, he turned to his word. He heard the word of God. He trusted and he obeyed the word of God. He did not seek the counsel of the world. He did not turn to forge alliances with his allies and neighbors. We didn't get into that, but if you look back in his history, you'll see he had a history of forging alliances with his neighbors to help him take care of of battles like that. But he, he didn't do that. He turned immediately to the Lord. Don't we do that? Sometimes don't we seek everywhere else to solve our problems other than the one that we need to go? Sometimes... You hear of Christians that are going having crises and they go to their friends, their neighbors, their psychologists, their therapists. And where do we need to go? It's to the one who can really help us. Terry and I were recently at a counseling conference in Louisville and we heard great examples of people who were in crisis and they were delivered by applying scripture to their lives. Terry sat in a case study about a little girl who hadn't eaten or drank and she wouldn't eat or drink or even talk. She had even quit talking. And she'd been to all kinds of doctors and therapists. and But she was eventually healed by a lady who sat and read her the word of God and counseled her even with no response. And she eventually responded and helped just by hearing and applying the word of God to her life. 
I listen to a medical doctor talk about depression and bipolar and, and what's going on in that arena and how people are not really getting better. But when the Word of God is applied to their life, many times they are miraculously healed. We listened to a lady who was deep into the lesbian lifestyle share her testimony. She was an English teacher. And she started studying the Bible, not because she was trying to learn about it, but because she was an English teacher and that was her thing, reading books. And she started studying the Bible and she was miraculously healed and transformed and ended up marrying a pastor and having children because of the Word of God. Our God is a big and powerful God. And if we will trust Him and His Word and we will be obedient, He can see us through any crisis, and we can come out on the other side victorious. Not always in the earthly view of victory, but more godly, closer to Him, more spiritual. And the third godly response in the midst of crisis is to have an attitude of thankfulness and praise. We can praise Him during a crisis for one reason only, and that's because we know that He is sovereign, He is in control, And that the battle is his. It's not ours. The outcome is his, not ours. His purposes will never be thwarted. If we truly believe that, then we can do nothing else but praise him. And after the crisis is over, many times in hindsight, we can see even more clearly how God has worked. Even if we can't, though, there's no excuse for not trusting the Lord. No earthly father wants harm to come to their children. As our heavenly father, he has the power to see to it that no real harm comes to his children. And he does that for us. So my prayer is for all of us this morning that are believers. When the next crisis comes, we need to respond more godly. Some of you may be in the middle of a crisis right now. You may be trusting him. You may be obeying him. But are you praising and thanking him in the middle of the crisis? That's one of the main responses we should have. Because the outcome is not chance. The outcome is already determined and it is in our best interest. And if by providence there's someone here this morning that's never placed their trust in Christ for salvation, then when your crisis comes, and it will, if not in this life, it will come in the next, then you need to turn to Christ right now before before that day comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for our example in Jehoshaphat and how we should respond to crisis. Father, forgive us when we get emotional and, Father, when we fall apart and we fall to fleshly instincts of response. Help us to become more like Jehoshaphat. Help us to follow his example. Father, in seeking you first. In hearing your word and being completely obedient and trustworthy even when we don't understand. And may we all grow in our ability to praise and thank you. Even in the midst of turmoil. Even in little things that come into our life. May we give you praise and thanksgiving knowing that you are sovereign. That you're in control. That you love us more than anyone, Father, can. And that you have the power Father, to see us through to the end and the outcome is yours. May we lift the crises in our life from our shoulders and place them upon you who has the ability to be victorious in ways that we can't even imagine. It is in your son Jesus' name that we pray these prayer. Amen.